The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. One such example is one of the biggest releases from Second Mission's publishing wing, The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. The Hill focuses on Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, uh, specifically his time as infantry squad leader in Garmsir, Helmand Province, during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. For more on the Hill, as well as everything else the Second Mission Foundation has going on, visit them at secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current events and articles of interest to the public in general and to the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. So go ahead. If you haven't been on in a while, surf the pages of Havoc Journal. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies. list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So if you haven't been there recently, go back and check them out. And if you've been there, keep on reading because you know how good the content is. HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K. Journal.com. HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Paul Kobe, who uh, I first discovered on Instagram as a prolific photographer, videographer, um, content creator. And uh, what struck me about his work wasn't uh, just that his work was good and uh, interesting and covered subjects that, uh, you know, any red-blooded dude is going to like, you know, sports, fitness, military stuff. Um, But it was also the snippets of his personality that came out in some of the things he would write uh, about how he was, you know, struggling with this or that issue, um, you know, dealing with some personal issues. Uh, some reflections on his time in the Air Force. And it made me realize there's there's a really interesting person with a really interesting story there. And so I wanted to talk to Paul. And I was glad I did. Uh, he's a really interesting dude. I really enjoyed talking with him. I'm trying to think of how many or how few spoilers to give. Um, from his time in the Air Force, a very unsatisfying stint that included uh, his time in the combat controller um, pipeline and uh, and kind of how that's played out in his life up until and including the Afghanistan withdrawal, which he um, played a, a really key role in. And uh, as we talk about, had a bit of 
a redemptive quality to it for him. So anyway, super interesting dude, super talented guy, and uh, with a really interesting and heartfelt story. I, I just had a great time. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Paul Alcobi's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Paul. Appreciate it. Uh, stoked to be on. Dude, it's great to have you on. I know we've been trying to um, connect for a while, man. And I was glad we could finally get it together. And I feel like you're one of those guys that I uh, I feel like we have a lot of mutual friends. I always hear about you through other people like, oh, yeah, so I saw Paul blah, blah, blah over PB Abate or here or whatever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I was hitting him up on Instagram. But it was like it was always like a couple steps removed. So I felt like this was a long time coming, at least in my mind. That's how it always was. Yeah, same here, man. Just like, uh, I don't know. I feel like I, I just happened to uh, pop around a bit. So, Well, one of the things I didn't realize we actually had in common um, was uh, this time last year. And not to jump into the deep end of the pool right off the bat, but um, I didn't realize you were involved with the Afghan evacuation stuff as you were. Were you on the ground? Were you boots on ground? No. Okay. So you're <clears throat> no. Right. So, uh, yeah, I had a, uh, I had an offer to fly out pretty early and, yeah. uh, my passport was not current. So yeah. it just, uh, didn't, didn't happen. And, um, in a lot of ways I'm thankful it didn't happen, but yeah. How did you get roped in? How did they find uh, you or did you raise your hand? So I was, I was literally just, uh, writing about that the other day. Um, a good friend of mine, Chris hit me up and, uh, he was like, Hey, uh, so-and-so has a, uh, interpreter that was, uh, their wife needs help getting out. She's with another family mm-hmm. and, uh, he doesn't know anyone over there. Do you happen to have any friends? And then it just snowballed from there. Do you, did you have friends? Were you current enough with the Afghans, like Afghanistan that you could reach out to people? Yeah. I had some folks on the ground out there, uh, and okay. some folks that were flying out there, um, in that time frame. Oh, got so, you. Okay. Uh, it worked out pretty well. Um, when was the last time you were in Afghanistan? I was never in Afghanistan. Really? Okay. Yeah, wow. man. Um, my like closest ties to Afghanistan, at, you know, at that time were, uh, working on a few ANA patients and had some pilots that came through, uh, a base I was at when they were on a training rotation and that was it. So how did, how did all that strike you? I mean, just on the emotional level, was it mostly like, Hey, I want to help out my friends who are trying to help out the Afghans or was it the injustice of the situation at at writ large or what was it that, that motivated you to get involved in any way with the EVAC? I think it was, I felt like it was partially our responsibility uh, as Americans because in a lot of ways we created that situation. So uh, and then, you know, that coupled with, uh, just knowing a lot of folks were very emotionally attached to the situation. So, um, you know, being able to, I guess, have even a small impact was like, all right, you know, yeah. I, I have some time to kill. So <laughs> gotcha. not really, but, um, what yeah, was the- I actually, t- sorry, go ahead. I actually took like a PTO from work cause I was working a, uh, a really shitty, corporate job at the time and uh was like yep i'm i'm just gonna take some pto on this and took a few weeks off work and yeah 
how did you find it? How did you find uh, working with people remotely and trying to get them from, I assume you were trying to get them from point X to point Y. Um, I think how'd you find that? It was one of the craziest experiences in my life for sure. Um, I was, I think I was very fortunate. Uh, I've always been very good at networking and I think that really carried over into this because I was able to kind of orchestrate various different, it was almost like a big ass puzzle and right. you're sitting there obviously orchestrating um, different pieces of that puzzle. So, you know, having friends at various different agencies or commands and being able to kind of uh, have them, you know, help in, in certain situations and then have people that were able to kind of fill other roles was great. Were you able to get any of your folks onto a plane? A bunch. Yeah. Really? Yeah, get a lot of folks out. Yeah. So you were there, were you working deep into September or, or were you really just kind of August in that first week of September? Um, I was still, uh, a handler for someone, if you will, uh, until I'd say the end of the year. Um, I still had a, yeah, I mean, I, there's, I still, I mean, I'm still, I actually just got a message from them the other day. I mean, they're still in a safe house. Yeah. So yeah, sure, um, sure. I'm not involved. I had to yep. uh, step away due to like personal reasons yep. a long time ago. And also just, um, you know, the situation changed drastically and I didn't want to be a liability in any way, shape or form. Uh, so once it, it reached a point where I was like, Hey, my, my capabilities are like, I, I don't have anything to, yep. to offer to this situation. Yep. I stepped back. Um, and I, I got people involved that, that were able to assist. So. What was the latest you got at somebody onto a plane? Uh, trying to remember. I mean, we had stuff running until the last day out of HKIA. And then, I mean, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, there were some people that got out through rat lines as well uh, that we worked with. So, uh, but definitely on that last day. Uh, so you didn't get remember. anybody out after HKIA fell? Uh, just via rat lines. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, even so. through rat lines is fucking great. I mean, that's fucking yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were a couple of folks that got out in the Pakistan. Yeah. Um, it was it was pretty scarce, but yeah. uh, you know, and uh, the most recent that I'm tracking on is a family I worked with. Um, I had kind of given them the advice because they weren't really military affiliated or anything like mm. that. I was like, hey, uh, you know, really the best advice I have is to reach out to smaller governments in the EU. Mm-hmm. and see from there and um they reached out and they managed to get into cyprus and get refugee wow. status there and they got wow. out about a month ago so wow. uh so yeah what, so i mean great for them it's awesome you, no that's huge what did you find was the skill set besides networking that you could bring um i mean did you find that you were able to guide people because without any knowledge of the country like did you were you relying on other people's um, you know, background, other people's like overlays on maps to be able to track routes and be able to get people from one point to another? Or were you really kind of handling a lot of administrative tasks, like getting their P1, P2 paperwork or that kind of stuff put together? Like, wh- what did you find was the best way for you to help when you were doing all that? I, was, I think I was like classified as the uh, coordinator for this uh, network that, that kind of, um, I guess formed through uh, just like multiple days of, of work. Uh, so 
I guess the I don't I don't know if you read the Washington Post article or not, but uh, the the biggest thing that kind of transpired was uh, I met this guy John Reed. He was a uh, eighteen Delta. Um, we had kind of just been having back and forth, seeing each other in some signal chat stuff like that. Yeah, he reached out, asked me if I wanted to kind of uh, combine and start this effort. Uh, so next thing, uh, he had brought in his buddy Tristan, who at the time was an active active SF guy. He got out, uh, he's gotten out since then, but we kind of combined that started our own, uh, we, we just call jokingly called it the network, um, mm-hmm. and had, you know, brought in a ton of folks that we knew, uh, personally. So we had oh, various sure. folks from mm-hmm. different commands, uh, agencies, um, you know, all, all within one team that we were, kind of uh, compartmentalizing. So, you know, we would kind of take different people for different tasks and be able to uh, pull, if someone had a TERP or something like that, we could just kind of have one point of contact for them. So that way it's not multiple people dealing with that family. It's one person and then everyone else is kind of supporting that operation. Um, So that's kind of how we operated and it worked very well for us uh, because we had various different components uh on the ground we had a um there's a couple crazy stories that came out of it but you know we had a couple uh various teams from AFSOC. uh there were some oga guys on the ground that helped us a ton and then uh we had a conventional army dude uh that was at um blackgate that was an absolute stud so uh you know definitely we're able to make strides because of that and just kind of coordinating that and and having the network to do so. So you didn't fall in on an existing framework. You actually started your own task force, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And this, and you started, so like just about everybody else, you started it about this time last year. And then yep. suddenly we're like, holy shit, I got to play the long game with this, right? Because suddenly HK is gone. <laughs> Everybody's scattered to the wind. And now we're picking up the pieces for months and months and months, if not a year after. And you guys have yeah. stuck with it, like as an organization. Um, no, I mean, most of our folks, I mean, we we were very, um, I think we were very transparent about it from the beginning. Uh, we were in direct talks with the DOD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, we, I don't want to say we had oversight, but we were briefing them in regards to what we were up sure. to. Sure. And uh, specifically a soft command. And we gave them everything. Uh, once HKI fell and once, you know, we had some internal dialogue about, hey, uh, this is kind of where we're at. This is what we're looking at. Um, you know, is there what level of involvement do we want to be at? And once we realized that our capabilities were pretty much diminished, yeah. um, we handed, we did basically a handoff. And we're like, hey, this is everything we've done. Uh, these are the people we've worked with. These yeah. are the assets still in country, you know, and, and handed it right off to them. And, um, to so my who, knowledge, who, they who'd, you hand, who'd you hand off to, to, uh, just a, DOD? a soft command. Okay. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So yeah, that's um, incredible, man. I mean, I think, I think that's a big thing it, it, that I'm seeing now, especially in the wake of like Tom Schumann's book coming out, uh, Scott Mann's book on pineapple express just came out. Yeah. Um, and uh, what I'm seeing is the the split between before HKFL and after HKFL. And I, um, 
I mean, I came in at after H Kai fell and that was just fucking agony. Um, yeah. Before, before H Kaya, there was hope <laughs> after H Kaya. It was just punch to the nuts after punch to the nuts, just trying to do anything you could to move people from frying pan to fire and back again. Yep. And, um, and that's why I was interested in, in, your stamina and your ability to stay with it and, and still stay in touch with people. But I completely not just appreciate, I think that was the right move to hand it off to other folks that would have the longevity and be able to handle the legacy piece of that. Cause that's a right. Yeah. Pain in the ass. Yeah. I think there was, there was a big component too, where uh, in terms of legality and stuff with the government, I think a lot of us were looking at, yeah. Um, I mean, there was a, a brief period there where, I was convinced, you know, uh, there were going to be very big legal ramifications for folks and having active duty folks and having, you know, contractors and and other folks involved. I was like, well, I'm going to take the, take the hit on this one because I'm not, you know, throwing them under the bus. What, what's your takeaway now? What's your 30,000 foot view now, now that you're removed from it, looking back on it, what, what's your emotions? What do you think? What's, what's your takeaway, whether it's, geopolitical personal emotional like what do you take away from the whole from your involvement yeah so i think a lot i I really didn't have much in terms of emotions about it until after ukraine started and then um so interestingly enough i grew up in a, a russian and ukrainian neighborhood and uh i kind of you know have a lot of ukrainian friends uh people families over there stuff like that and um i'm very empathetic of what's going on over there. But I also looked at the situation. I'm like, man, we're willing to send all this aid to these folks that like yeah. we already had been right. Like, yeah. like I had Ukrainian patients in like 2014, I was tasked to, yeah. to go yeah. there and it got canceled, Yeah, you know? And um, we thought it was going to blow up in 2014. Like that was yeah. when they had all the riots in the streets and everything. And yeah, yeah. you know, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's actually a great documentary on Netflix about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, was it but, uh, Winter Fire or something like that? Yeah, Winter yeah. Fire, I think it was. Yeah. Um, don't quote me on that, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. uh, but yeah. So I, once Ukraine started, and we started, just you know, everyone was was so, um, I don't want to say infatuated, but like everyone was like, oh, you know, the Ukrainian plight, this and that. It was very weird for I think a lot of folks that were involved in the Afghan evacs because we had no support. You know, I, I remember very distinct conversations I was having with very large political figures in this country, like people that, you know, were supposed to be calling for help. And they're calling me at two in the morning, asking me for favors for their constituents, um, you know, to, to, to help, uh, get someone's cousin's friend's interpreter out. Well, they're not technically your constituent. First off, secondly, you're calling an American citizen who is in his underwear yeah. in his living room asking for help. Like, yeah. does that, does that not raise a red flag for you to maybe go talk to your peers? Um, and I think a lot of that created uh, kind of disdain and uh, a little bit of a, uh, well, more untrust uh, in terms of being like, maybe I, maybe I should be looking further at some stuff uh, within the system and how we operate, uh, because looking back on it, I mean, things could have been handled so much differently. You know, we, we lost 13 service members and countless Afghans, uh, when there were 
I mean, we were getting the alerts, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah. I mean, there's so much crazy stuff that transpired uh, in terms of, of who I was dealing with. And, you know, I, there's a, John Reed recorded a few um, like zoom calls we were on. He just like took, you know, yeah. screen recordings yeah. of uh, me basically yelling at people at the Pentagon, uh, you know, stuff like that, where it's like, what, like, I was a 30 year old dude in my, my living room that hadn't slept in, in, you know, a week and a half. And I'm just yelling at, yeah. uh, general's aides at the Pentagon, like being told the yeah, other, they're, they're out to dinner on a Saturday night. I'm like, Oh, I wish I could be out at dinner like that. That would be awesome. But dude, you're hitting that, that sums up so well. I think so much of the frustration that I know I felt, and I think a lot of other people felt, which is, yeah that we were a bunch of pri- now private citizens for the most part with some active yeah. duty people sprinkled in all that, but mostly now private citizens that were trying to replicate the capabilities of the federal government on an ad hoc basis and on the spur of the moment. And it yep. was so fucking frustrating to try to do that and go, where the fuck is the cavalry, man? Where Where yeah. is the backup? And, and I, I couldn't agree more. And the fact that like, why are we, I mean, I know marriages that fucking fell apart. Um, yep. You know, people lost jobs. People, you know, right here, right to the, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, I lost my job two weeks after. No, because of it, because you had to take so much PTO. They never gave me a reason. Yeah, of course not. I think I mean there were some issues there beforehand as well, but um, you know, obviously I was out of the office for about three weeks, and um, we weren't working on the other issues that were going on in the office at the time. So uh, I was never given a, a hard reason as to why. But yeah, you're 100 percent accurate. Like. People lost jobs. People lost, you know, so much because of it. So, and it was, and it, what, what I think galled me most. I don't, I don't know if you had, if, if this is how the experience uh, hits you as well. I was galled about the amount of people that could look at it on the TV and empathize and go the poor Afghans and all that. And it was all these, all the emotional cues that the average American is told to believe in: sympathetic victims. Um, military, former military people stepping up, all the stuff that you're supposed to rah rah root for. Yep. But when you were close to it, and when someone you know was doing it, there wasn't the support, and people were looking. Whether it was employers, whether it was in a marriage, whether it was family, whether it was whatever. But I think so many people that I talked to and 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 rub shoulders with were like, yeah, we're um we're fucking insane in everyone's eyes and no one, no one actually wants to pay the cost of doing the righteous work. They all like the emotion of trying to support, but who actually wants to be fucking fielding WhatsApp and signal messages at three in the morning for days on end and not getting any sleep and, and hopeless, you know, knowing that you're, you're struggling to even put get people out of the country or whatever. And, um, I think there was a lot of cognitive dissonance with that. I, I think you're right. I think I wonder if that's going to end up in in years to come being an inflection point where a lot of military and former military folks kind of lost faith. Um, I don't know. I, I hope I'm wrong about that. Yeah, it's it's definitely been uh, an internal struggle in that regard for me. Um, you know, and and a lot of the folks that I dealt with uh, on that stuff have since uh like there was one guy that was contracting at a pretty high level uh who was then 
uh, he was a firefighter or is a firefighter, um, you know, in the city and he was trying to go back to contracting and hasn't, uh, been able to get back into contracting and he doesn't know why. And it's like, is it because you're involved in this? You know, there's certain things where, uh, we've definitely wondered if, if our involvement has potentially, uh, I don't want to say blacklisted us, but you know, there's, it's questionable, right? Because, and we're never, we won't get complete answers on that no. stuff. But. Yeah, and you may never know, which is even more frustrating. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what, were you, so. what were you doing? What was your job when you took your PTO? Uh, so I was doing a full-time video at a, a company in the uh, firearms industry. Got so. you. Got you. All right. Yeah. So you were in the videography game and I, I well, let's get into you uh, personally. And I, and I, I appreciate having somebody to commiserate with about this time last year, because I do think yeah. this month is going to be important, but you've got your own story as well um, going on with this. So I first discovered you, I think when you were freelancing, I don't think I was tracking you until you'd kind of freelance. I was like, damn, this dude does some cool shit, but you were, so I didn't realize that you were coming from a company that you had been kind of learning the craft. Like what, when did you uh, stumble on my page? I, I think it was probably after Afghanistan. I, okay. I think, yeah. I think so, so. Um, yeah, so I had been freelancing, uh, from 2017 through 2019, well, okay. 2020, and then, uh, COVID happened and then took this job down in Florida. Uh, so I moved down there, uh, from Philly, took that job, uh, was promised to me as a dream job. It was not that, uh, obviously left there, um, more on their terms than mine, but, uh, then just kind of started, uh. I guess freelancing again, but didn't really have any work for, I don't know, nine months. So, uh, that was, that was pretty interesting, but was that, was that uh, a you problem or was that a a industry problem? Was it a matter uh, of you making the connections? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think when weirdly, so, uh, while I was at that job, I actually had a whole, uh, episode where I ended up in the hospital, um, and they're basically came down with a uh, depersonalization, um, due to PTSD. So, uh, went through some treatment, uh, in the form of ketamine assisted therapy that, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate to get the help of heroic hearts with. And while I was going through that, my boss really was kind of, uh, there were people at the company that were kind of blocking, um, or trying to block me getting help uh by term by in the terms of basically saying hey you need to ask permission to go to your appointments or uh trying to stop you know coworkers from driving me stuff like that and i don't have any issues with that i mean i, I don't talk to those people now and i don't mm-hmm. intend to but uh on a personal level you know it's water under the bridge as far as i'm concerned i've moved on from it but uh i was pissed at the time Right. And I wasn't going to well, yeah, take sure. that lightly. Sure. Um, so the job just became a very toxic place for me. Uh, so I was doing way better in my personal life, um, but was still struggling with that, that professional piece. And then obviously the Afghan issue started. Uh, so I had just gotten over COVID, you know, I, I'd had that whole thing with the hospital yeah. and then going through um, therapy, stuff like that. Uh, and then right after COVID, uh, the CEO posted a photo of him on a fishing trip uh, randomly with a a guy that looked very familiar to me. And then I realized it was one of my patients um, 
who had been flown to us in Germany uh, when I was working in the ICU. And uh, he was an SF cat that, that got shot. And uh, he was in uh, pretty pretty bad shape when he got to us. But long story short, I called the CEO and went, hey, is that so-and-so? He's like, yeah, how'd you know that? You know, he's my patient uh, back in the day. So about a week later, I get fired. And I think the emotional distress from all of that just kind of dumped on me for the next like six months. So, you know, that that's going on. My apartment raises my rent $900 a month because Florida doesn't have rent control. Sure. So I'm, sure. I'm being like pushed out of my apartment. Yeah. And then uh, my mom gets sick. She gets COVID. She's in the ICU for like three months. Uh, so long story short, I ended up in Philly, um, which if you know me, uh, many folks know that I'm from Philly, but I, I, and I'm proud to be from Philly, but I, I hate Philly now, like hate it. Right. right. <laughs> so, uh, I, is, I end up back. Is that recent? Five months. Is it recent? Yeah, is it a recent yeah. hate? Okay. All right. Uh, not recent, but you know, I'd say the past like decade probably. And why, so. what, where did, where did the hate come from? I think I've I've just had a lot of realization that, that people in Philly are just a lot of folks are very uh, I don't want to say everyone but but a lot of folks are very miserable. I mean, so. you're talking to a New Yorker, so you can say whatever yeah. you want about Philly. you know the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah no, it's um, but you didn't resent it for your whole life until a decade ago. So you had like, was it because it was normal to you, or was it because there were things you actively liked about it? Um, I, I mean, I grew up loving Philly, you know, I grew up, uh, really, I was skateboarding. I was in the graffiti into like hip hop, you know, like grew up in that, that realm. Like I was skating at love park, um, and going in the subway tunnels and, you know, enjoying myself. So I, I grew up uh, a full on city kid. Like there was no, well, you were uh, actually you know, people... from Philly itself, like from yeah. the city itself. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. My first job was, uh, like one of the the iconic Philly skate shops, which was Sub-Zero. And it's like every, everyone that grew up skating in the 90s knew Sub-Zero because, you know, Ricky Oyola and, uh, you know, just all the the love, uh, like Love Park kind of created wow. that. And, you know, they had the uh, their, their like Sub-Zero love style deck and everything else. So that's just, yeah, that was wow. my first job. And you were a skater. That's who you were. Yep. Up. Yeah. What did you think you were going to do? Was there a thought in the back of your mind about Man, what you would end up doing in life? I had no idea. I was uh, I was kind of a piece of like really a piece of shit kid, uh, and my my high school teachers really turned me around. I'd probably be in jail or who knows at this point because I, I was definitely going down some uh, some sketchy roads at times. Why? Probably just my upbringing, man, you know, like broken home type stuff. Uh, okay. I, I think, you know, my parents were great parents, but uh, in terms of relationships, stuff like that, and uh, they didn't know how to manage me, not in the slightest. So I was just doing my own thing, um, you know, just out, like doing what I wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, just kind of went my own way. And uh, in high school, I had uh, some teachers that were pretty influential in my life and um, I still keep in touch with some of them. And really? wow. one of them was a Marine. He was actually in Fallujah. Um, so he, he definitely helped me kind of turn things around. And I had another uh, mentor, so to speak, who he was in the army and mentioned the air force. And, you know, at first he was talking to me about, you know, 
uh, like pararescue and looked into it and I was like, man, that's, you know, it'd be dope to be a PGA, but you know, these combat controllers do some crazy shit. Um, and that was what I joined for and ultimately ended up becoming a medic, uh, washed out of the, the pipeline. Uh, but you know, that was the motivation I needed. And, and that really kickstarted training, uh, when I was around 18, 19, um, when really? I was that became a focus. Yeah. Really? Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. So, um, like I, I was actually living in Israel at the time. Um, yeah. So my family, my dad is from Israel and, uh, I would, I moved over to Israel when I was a few days after graduating high school. Okay. Um, so I was living in Israel, uh, with your dad. No. Okay. Just by yourself. Uh, I was living in my grandmother's. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. uh, I'm just kind of hanging out just, you know, like ooh, running ooh. to the beach every day, finning, so all that what, stuff. What, what was that like as a semi-reformed high school delinquent now living in Israel? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, was it cool? Was it freeing? Was it? Oh, it was it, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was funny because I had like a bunch of like like graffiti. Like, there were a bunch of graffiti writers there. There were a bunch of skaters there. You know, it was like, and it was like a very like chill kind of uh life i guess um i mean i i didn't work there or anything like that you know my grandmother like cooks for an entire army on on a daily basis so it's great but uh yeah i mean i was kind of getting out out of that stuff and uh it was it was funny because one of the guys that i used to hang out with when i'd go there in the summers um he actually ended up going to an israeli soft unit so like that whole summer he was getting ready for that and I was training to come back and, and go in the pipeline. And we basically just hung out, trained, and then oh, would cool. go at night and like, like, right. Um, sort of like scaling, you know, fucking signs on the highway, you know, just like writing, um, whatever. That's but trippy. Yeah. How did, you, so how, did that, you, how did you find that? How did, what did you think the relationship was with that? Was there kind of like, I got to be really disciplined with my workouts, but I need some way to blow off steam and go. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, also just that, like, I think it's just that chasing adventure aspect as well. Yeah. But, um, you know, that, that was kind of my upbringing. Like my, my neighbor growing up was a very big graffiti writer in Philly. And I mean, I learned about it very early on and, uh, like I was by no means a great writer. Like I, I was not, you know, um, I think I'm artistic in, in some ways, but like, you know, that was more, I think just chasing adventure more than anything. So what was it? Was it, was it the illicit nature of it? Was it that you got to go out in the middle of the night and like sneak around and, you know? Yeah, for sure. Spray. Okay. 100%. Right. Got yeah. you. What was the craziest but, one you did? Did you ever do anything like where you're bungee jumping and spraying at the same time or something weird like that? I definitely climbed a lot of things and, you yeah. know, subway tunnels, stuff like that. Cause, uh, Philly's got a pretty elaborate, uh, so they have the L, which goes underground at Market Street, but then you also have the uh, Broad Street line. So uh, and there's a bunch of old trolley lines, stuff like that. So you can get into some pretty insane. If you go down into the tunnel system in Philly, you'll get some some pretty crazy places. So I haven't done it in years. Did you take pictures? I had so I found some stuff recently because uh, I I got into photography when I, when I was a kid. Like I got my first film camera. I had, uh, I found my, my actual first like video camera, um, probably about a year ago, but, uh, you know, I, I've looked for a lot of stuff and, and can't find it, but yeah, uh, I definitely 
took a lot of them. I've lost so much stuff though, man. Sure. Of course. Bums me out, but you but know, was it, but that was where you were starting to fall in love with photography was film was oh, yeah. sh- shooting your own stuff. Yeah. Well, not even that, just like wandering around shooting stuff yeah. when we were okay. just out. So, um, like I shot like skate stuff and, you know, we would go to like a uh, boy barbecue, which was a big, um, like back in the day it was, I don't, I don't know if it's still around, but, uh, it was a big, like graffiti b-boy, like mm. DJ yeah. meetup essentially. And, uh, all these folks would come in and it was dope. Um, so I would just take, you know, photos there and I'm, I'm just this like little white kid running around. Like there's photos of me from, from like back in the day that like I've shown people and they're like, Jesus Christ, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what, like, what did you like, find? You, you like kidding. Yeah. Did you, did you like being around people more and being able to take pictures or did you like the sites and going to a cool place and just taking kind of pictures of a setting more? Either, either or, man. Okay. I just had a good time with it. There was no like, you know, I, I was just messing around with the camera. I, I didn't know. I was, yeah. I don't know, 12, 13 years old. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fucking crazy. So you end up going into the Air Force now when you come back from Israel. Yep. And uh, going through the CCT pipeline. Yeah. Okay. Didn't make it far. <laughs> but yeah. uh, how was it though for you? How did you feel going through it? Did you feel. I mean, was there a I, sense of pride that just even tackling the pipeline? Or oh, yeah. Was yeah, I mean, I was, I was squared away. Like, physically, I, I was very squared away. Um, you know, even mentally, it was, like, one one thing that uh, definitely broke me. And it was um, – so my mom has COPD, and that's what uh, kind of beat the hell out of her with COVID as well. Yeah. And I got, a fo- I got a phone call from uh, the person that told me about, uh, you know, AFSOC in the first place, uh, the guy that was in the army and he, uh, he definitely shouldn't have called me and told me this, but he was like, yeah, man, like your mom's not doing great. Right. Like I'm, I'm in the middle of a selection course. Like you probably shouldn't call and tell me that, especially when, you know, and that just kind of triggered a whole bunch of stuff. And then, um, my team leader, uh, I was actually just talking to, uh, one of the guys I was in selection with about this. Uh, my team leader on that team was, uh, basically we went to him to talk to him about it. And he told me a story about his mom and how he was in PJ and doc years prior. And she was uh, unfortunately very ill and passed away. And, uh, that, you know, that's like, I'm a fresh airman right out of basic. I'm like, well, I guess that, you know, tells me my decision. Like, and looking back on it, I'm like, man, if I had been an NCO in that position, there is no way I would have said that story like ever uh, to this kid that just put his entire life into yeah. this. Yeah. Um, so, so real quickly, I found myself not even just up to be um, cr- like, you know, cross trained into a different job, but like literally up for discharge. Like they, this was during the furloughs. So everyone was just getting kicked out like left and right. So they, they put you in a squadron called ATAF. Um, and I basically get over there. And it's for, you know, tra- like yeah. airmen transitioning out, outside of the Air Force, I think yeah. was, I, I forget the, the exact acronym for it. But uh, I basically had to do various different details, including like Op 4. Like they sent me to do Op 4 with this guy that was uh, being kicked out for killing two people that tried to rob him. And, and then like years later, Jesus he gets Christ. he gets convicted of murder for like unrelated, like, 
dude shot someone in the head, you know? Like, I thought you were going to say it was something like fucking boring, like you were painting rocks or something. You're, nah, they're man. sending people like that to play op for. That's fucking yeah, insane. Man. I was in the middle Holy of nowhere shit. with this dude on, on camp Bullis. Like that's fucking like insane. That. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. There was some wild stuff that happened at that squadron. There was a guy that, that definitely, uh, stared down and wrestled the hog in the common area like just crazy shit like that where you're just like did that actually just happen um there there were some some very interesting individuals there but uh but, but for I you should, you weren't trying to get out you were just trying to reclass at that point right yeah yeah so um i but was they group you with all these get, fucking fuck-ups wow that's fucking crazy <laughs> well there, wow. so there were there were fuck-ups like like some some insanely wild situations uh, you know, stuff that you're just like, how did someone do that? And then yeah. there were a bunch of folks that just washed out of, of the pipelines. Okay. So, there, you know, it's, it's just this like motley crew of people yeah. and it's just utter chaos all the time because of it. Um, so. Hey, Paul, talk I about that for, for, talk about that for one second. I'm sorry. I wanted to digress yeah. for one second. Cause I, I got like this suicide squad image in my head now of like Pretty this much, motley, yes. right? It's like, yes. I mean, and I'm just kind of interested in the psychology of that group. Like, so, cause that's a really interesting mix of people that are either definitively like made the life choice to veer off the deep end or people that just have washed out and are trying to probably rehab their psyche in some way, yeah. shape or form. Right. Yeah. What, how did you feel being in that mix? Like mentally, where were you pissed. at? I was, were you? So yeah. I was trying to go into the TACP pipeline at the time. Um, very so hard, you could do that. So you could you could go from CCT no, to attack me. Okay. No, like it, it, that. Was, there were like very rare chances of doing that at the sure. time, and I was like, "Well, fuck! I'm gonna get I'm gonna get screwed. I'm gonna get sent to like security forces right. or like ammo or some shit, and right. I need to fix this." So a bunch of guys had gotten sent over to medical, and I was like, "Well, I'm not trying to be a cop." I'll, I'll definitely get kicked out of the Air Force if I'm a cop. Uh, I'm definitely not trying to be a maintainer. And it's needs. So, so long story short, um, I actually skipped something. The NCOs there liked me a lot because I worked my ass off. So I would help them with stuff and I just had a really good rapport with them. So they actually recommended me to stay in. And I ended up having to meet with like the wing leadership. So I'm like an A1C. And I, I don't think I was even an A1C. I think I was, I was an airman. I was an E2 because I, I went in on a four year with no college. And I'm, I'm like, I'm sitting there and uh, with the wing commander for air education training command and the command chief and the commander liked me. And she's like, well, I'm going to let you stay in. And, uh, you know, you can take some time to think about it and then let me know, but it's going to be needs of the Air Force. And I'm like, you know, thank you, ma'am, this and that. And then the command chief is like, you have you have 48 hours. I'm like, fuck. Um, so it was just a, obviously a very big decision. And it was like, in my mind, I'm like, well, there's no way I'm going to ACP. Like, it's needs of the Air Force, but I can stay in. Uh, so ended up... I got lucky in a sense, um, depending on how you look at it. I got medical. Uh, so I became a medic and I, yeah. Did you, did you want to stay in? I mean, it's, I mean, how broken, how heartbroken were you? Were you like, Oh, I was crushed. Yeah. I mean, did you consider just getting out and going, okay, fuck this all together. Yes. Yeah. And, And so my, my majority of my flight was on my team in selection. 
um, my team started with a ton of dudes. Like I think we started over 50 or 60 guys on the mm-hmm. team. And the first day we lost like, like 40 people. Um, but, uh, all those dudes got discharged. Like all of them were like out of the air force, you know, within like two weeks. Um, wow. so I, I was like, fuck, like this, this is not, I, I got to figure something out here because if I get out, you know, I, I just put all my eggs in one basket essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. and there, there was, you know, so it well, was like, what do can, I do? Can I just ask about, about, and yeah. I'm, I'm just interested in the psychology of this. Um, I don't know why, but it's just, it's interesting to me with, yeah. because a job like that and preparing for that pipeline, you're, you're, I don't want to say you're changing yourself, but you're certainly changing your lifestyle. And you're becoming very like myopically focused on one specific goal. So now while you, while you were in that kind of purgatory of figuring out what the next step was going to be, what did you, what was your self image? Did you take it that hard? Were you like, Oh, I'm not who I thought I was or yeah. Yeah. Mentally, how did you rehabilitate yourself? I think that that took a really long time. Um, You know, and then, not only that, but a lot of guys that if, if you go into a pipeline, whether it's, you know, uh, SF Ranger seal, whatever, and then you wash out, um, you get treated like shit by every command you go to. Right. So, uh, everyone basically is going to be like, Oh, you know, you're a fucking quitter or whatever. And, uh, I think a lot of guys take that very hard. Um, I put it, I realized very quickly, um, a lot of us were, I don't want to say different, but we had a different work ethic and we're willing to kind of do uncomfortable shit when we had to. Um, so I think that was a good thing that, that kind of carried me through. Whereas a lot of folks though, like they kind of, it kind of broke them, I think. Um, so you thought, you thought your work ethic wasn't diminished. Like you were like, I can always fall back on my work ethic. Like you're not going to outwork me. And that's something I can hold on to. That can be a toehold. Yeah. To move forward. Yeah. That's interesting. So, that's interesting. It's kind of like, kind of like a puritanical sweat, sweat it out. Like, you know, Hey, I can always outwork. And, and that's, that'll atone for a lot. And that's probably a good lesson in life in general. That's probably true for a lot of people that if you have yeah. the discipline to just work, that can solve yeah. a lot of that can cover for a lot of sins. And kind of full circle, I, I think that kind of came into play with the Afghan stuff too, where um, there is a, uh, and, and it's definitely a story I'll talk about uh, certain aspects anyway, but there was a guy we got out, a uh, buddy of mine uh, reached out and he had been a GRS guy. Mm-hmm. And one of the dudes he had met, uh, Oconus, who was a uh, British soft dude, uh, was a handler for this guy. Uh, so basically I, I get kind of tied into it where this, this Afghan dude who is a very, very, you know, high value person is stuck in Kabul with his family and needs to get out, but they have no ride. So I get hit up and then figure out that a contact I know who is at a defense contractor has a he contracted a bus just a a local afghan bus and he wanted to get it on the hkaya well i had this this kind of power play where it's like hey i'll get this bus on if you get my guy on so it kind of worked out to where 
we were going to kind of set them up to a rally point, but, uh, long story short, this dude who we now call Gan Wick, um, he was leaving his house to go meet the bus. And, uh, I'm actually in the process of just confirming the number to make sure, but a Taliban hit squad showed up at his house, uh, and he smoked, we believe three of them in the door. Um, and I just say that because I want confirmation before I put like the full story out, sure. uh, on that number. So that's unconfirmed three, but you know, just smoke them in the doorway and then grabbed his family and dipped out. And, uh, he was in like a sequin shirt, which makes it even better. Um, you know, but, uh, so a Scarface all- moment. That's fucking yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So after all this, you know, there's a ton of chaos in route to Kaya for them and, but another buddy hits me up who had another bus that needed to get on. Um, and in this time frame, I also find out the white house is trying to contact me. No idea why. Um, long story short, I got these two buses in the handler for the original guy, Dan wick reached out to my buddy and asked about, he's like, who's the guy that's running this? Um, and he's like, Oh, it's my buddy, Paul. And he's like, Oh, is he like a case officer is he an operator like what's the deal here he's like no he's just some dude in his living room in his underwear right now like he was a medic for like four years and got out so but you know in the grand scheme of things it's just funny because i think that work ethic is associated with a lot of those things but uh in general i think it's just having that work ethic regardless um is why those people are the way they are um you know, and, and that's not me trying to compare myself to the level of them in, in the slightest because they do fucking amazing things. Um, but I think that is a big trait of those career fields. Do you so. think there was, I, I'm spe- totally speculating here. So yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. Do you think there was a little redemption in what you did in Afghanistan for yourself that you 100%. were there? Yeah. 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 Um, I didn't, I didn't feel like. I achieved what I wanted to in the military, nor in contracting. Um, I did some cool shit as a contractor that was uh, more on the state side. Um, But I like in no way, shape or form feel like I did what I wanted to in the military. So. Yep. I could totally see that. Um, I want to ask just before we leave the subject. um, Yeah. So just so I'm clear. So when, when you got really bad, advice and bad information in the pipeline was it a conscious choice on your part to then go okay i i i don't have the stamina for this i'm i'm broken right now or did it just kind of catch up with you while you were trying to push through it it just caught up because yeah. i um i was actually offered uh and I, to this day I, I don't like it's it's still weird to me what happened but uh that friday um because most of this started, I think it was either Wednesday night or Thursday. Uh, that Friday, I met with an instructor who had been like, yeah, man, um, you know, if you want, you can go back to your dorm, you know, um, go take care of your shit and then come back and start selection over. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, this dude's fucking with me. There's, there's no way in hell. And he's like, I want you to stand there and think about it. Um, and then he's just like, are you quitting? And I was like negative sergeant and stood there for like five minutes. Um, and he's like, what, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm going back to my team. And I just went back and, um, finished out the day. And then, uh, you know, over the weekend though, it's, it's that downtime 
right? Like that downtime is what fucks with people. And, uh, that's where it kind of like caught up and, and went rampant. And, uh, Monday morning was when I, I basically was just like, Hey, I'm like, I'll never forget it. One of the instructors rolls up and it like in my head, it's, it's fucked up, but comical at the same time. Uh, he rolls up and he was in a pickup and I remember he barely stopped the truck and he jumps out. He's like, he's like, who's fucking quitting today? I can smell it. I'm like, God damn it. Like, fuck. <laughs> So, yeah, but oh, was, uh, it, was it a ruck that you were on? You remember no, the we, moment? we were just formed up. So okay. uh, we would do like, you know, they had their uh, every morning you would do like memorial push up stuff like that. And I remember just being formed up around the flag and um, I was literally just just standing there like in tears. Like I've I've cried like a handful of times I can count, um, you know, and I'm just standing there like in tears, just sobbing like fuck like this, this is not cool. And then, uh, years later, uh, one of my best friends, he, uh, we were talking about everything and he's like, dude, I should have just fucking kicked you in the nuts or something. Like uh, just like stop yeah. the situation before it happened. Uh, cause he knew, he knew, um, he was like one of, I don't know, two people that probably knew what was going on. So, um, it was, yeah, pretty wild. When you transition then to be a medic, was it disappointing? Was it? Oh yeah. Redemptive. Okay. Yeah. 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 It was, um, I was happy to have some kind of task to do. Yeah. Uh, and I got very lucky in what I did as a medic, because I think if I went to a clinic, um, off the, I, I didn't work in a clinic at all. And I got very lucky because of that, because most air force medics just end up in clinics and they're mm. sitting around they're not doing shit. Um, I went my clinical phase, was all at like at um samsey so it was like a busy hospital and i did some ems stuff there and then from there i went straight to germany and i worked on you know uh med surge and icu and i was just busy for two years uh and after that i was on ems again and trying to go to a, a soft career field uh within medicine so it a soft career field, like it's still in the military. Yeah. Like, uh, so the air force has a route for medics to go, uh, and they're basically called softies. So it's like the, uh, medical element, I guess, for, they do like austere, like Casavac, shit like that, okay. um, at the OSM. And I wanted to go that route because my roommate at the time and a good buddy of mine were both at that unit. And I was like, well, that's the route to go. And I came up, I had six months left and I was like, Hey, you know, I want to go to the OSM. I want to be an IDMT. And they were like, well, you got to stay on ambulance for three more years. I was like, cool. I'm getting out. Bye. Wow. And that was it. Wow. So overall, did you, so, I mean, how would you rate your time in the military? Was it overall just a disappointment? Was it full of regrets? Was it, was there stuff you could build on? Like how, how do you, how do you rate your time in? I thought about that. Uh, I would say a little bit of a mix, uh, but in terms of the disappointments of, of bad leadership kind of outweighed a lot of the uh, accomplishments. Cause I, mm. and it, weirdly my army leadership, cause I, I was at a joint unit in Germany. Mm. My army leadership was amazing. They were awesome mm. for the most part, not, not at the unit level. Like we had, uh, we actually had a lot of strife with, with our, um, NCOIC and, and OIC on the floor, 
but hmm. above that like like majority of the army command i worked with was great um air force side never just never had a good uh never had a good time so and then after that i was when i went to afsoc i i was so i was like the worst airman ever because i was just with the army for two years i didn't know shit about the air force um you know and i was like well this is not going to be fun (laughs) so so when you got out did you go right to contracting uh no so I, I guess you don't know this story. Um, I guess I kind of did, but it was more on the fringe. Uh, I just became kind of a, a TCCC instructor for oh, like really? law enforcement and stuff. Yeah, because okay. uh, so I get out and there's no, I never got a DD-214. So I start calling and I'm like, hey, you know, because that day when I checked out, they're like, yeah, you need to, uh, you're going to get it mailed to you. I was like, that seems weird. So I called my what? buddy. He's like, yeah, I got mine after like a month. So I'm like, all right. So I leave. I drive back to PA from uh, New Mexico. And a month goes by. And I, I was waiting to to basically start with this defense contractor. Like I was I was working on their application process. And they're like, hey, we need a, a DD-214 from you so we can hire you. So I'm like waiting and, you know, just training, having fun, whatever. And nothing shows up I'm like all right this isn't normal so i start making phone calls uh, i call my old unit they're like hey you're not in anymore like we can't help you all right well thanks for that uh i call personnel on base they're like oh not our problem um and i'm having like back and forth with them then i call uh afpc um they're like whatever dude like call call the base um long story short i ended up having to get uh a ncoic actually the one that helped me stay in the air force because she was working at afpc at the time so i called her and she ended up it took a couple weeks and she looked into everything she's like yeah there's like no record of a dd214 for you so you're like still in the air force i'm like get the fuck out of here this is not happening so fuck I keep trying to fight it and she's like doing her part. I have another friend that's looking into stuff that's working at AFPC and I'm just, you know, losing my mind. Um, long story short of it all is I had to then have my congressman who it took months to get in contact with because, you know, fuck the constituents. Um, they had to, uh, basically intervene and send the congressional letter that got me my DD two fourteen. Um, which now is a member two that has a congressional letterhead attached to it that says this is valid as a DD-214 member four. Wow. Yeah, so it took me a year. um, So I couldn't go to the VA. I couldn't start school. I couldn't get a home loan. I couldn't start. I couldn't contract officially. Um, Yeah, so it was, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that doesn't put a fucking cherry on top of your military service holy shit yeah so that'll that, fucking leave a taste you know, in your mouth yeah, yeah yeah so that uh the afghan stuff everything else is uh you know i'm i love the government they're great they, yeah, they have yeah, our yeah, best yeah, interest yeah. in mind <laughs> yeah no seriously like that's that absolutely so what year was this that you finally get out of the military i got out in 2016 Okay. Yeah. So, All right. Uh, started terminal in September. Got out in October. Okay. So yeah. now at this point, um, what do you think you're going to do? 
what did you what did you want to do? What were the contract the plan? It was contract. It was like contract. And, and so, as a medic, what does that mean? Basically, is it instructor position, or what do you do? What no, what I was contracting. Going to try and just be, you know, like like PS PSD or something oh. further, or try to go to an agency, whatever. Um, okay. You know, I was like, well, I, I really want to try and 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 you know, I was still like. I don't want to say like I was still part of the system at that point. I was like kind of indoctrinated of like, I want to go do this, Um, you know, and, and there, I, I'm glad there are still people willing to do that. Uh, You know, I, I'm not one of them anymore. I just want to live my life. And um, you know, they're definitely a a different caliber of folks than me, I would say now, but. uh, But you you were like, you were like a Gurkha with a sword drawn. It's like, you got to shed some blood before you put it back in the sheath. Like you had to do something. You were still in that. Yeah. I was like, you know, I was still in that mindset of like, I want to, you know, I want to contribute. I want to be a part of this, whatever for, for maybe it was ego. It could have been whatever, right. It's not like uh, looking back on it now, it's like irrelevant, I guess. But um, that, at that time, that was what kind of hit of like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go contract or I'm going to try to, you know, go to an agency or whatever. Um, and and now, yeah. How did that work out when you went for it? Um, I worked a few contracts. I did, uh, quite a few rotations doing, um, a lot of like, like training side stuff too, which was cool because I picked up, uh, skills doing like some human work, stuff like that very randomly. Um, and then I was still instructing. So I was teaching law enforcement, first responders, uh, various agencies. Uh, so that it worked out pretty well in that realm. And then I was like, well, I think it's time to, uh, switch things up a bit. And I, I think I was, I was actually out here in Washington, uh, where I am right now. And I was on a contract. I had been shooting photos and I had like a paid gig right before and just kind of decided like, yeah, the contract's changing hands. Uh, the pay is probably going to change. I think I'm just going to start shooting photos full time and just kind of got back. And I, at the time was heavily involved in CrossFit and that was where I started shooting was, uh, within the CrossFit space. So let's talk about, uh, about the evolution of you as a photographer. I mean, were, had you made money off your pictures at that point? Did you think there was going to be a commercial? Okay. But you thought there was commercial possibility with it. You're like, people will pay for my shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, Um, but you also thought you were going to stay kind of in that military fitness space a little bit. So that was still the culture that you wanted to be in, but just with a different twist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, I, I kind of come up in the CrossFit space. That was what I knew. And, uh, at the time it, it seemed, it was just getting to the to the point where photographers were like, it's a shit show now over there. Like they have so many photographers and, you know, like videographers, stuff like that, where it's like, Jesus Christ. But, uh, it was, it was to the point where you could get in and, and you could definitely make some money. Um, if you worked hard and, uh, there were a ton of brands out at the time. Cause it was, it was kind of the, the glory days in CrossFit, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so you just show up to events, you can easily make money. Like it was, it was game on. So I started shooting, uh, competitions. I was getting involved, uh, with the coffee company. Um, uh, I guess a partner at, 
now, um, which we're not really doing much at the moment, but uh, I would go to to events with them. I would uh, shoot for random brands in between or at events and then uh, basically use contacts to get, uh, you know, press passes to events huh. and be able to shoot. So I could then hit. So my business model is different than some of the other folks because I would just hit hit brands up and be like, hey, I would shoot for like four or five brands at an event and, you know, make my money and dip. So other people what? were shooting photo packages. So yeah. So l- let me let me make sure I I understand that the the timeline of your photographic career. Were, had you been shooting while you were in the Air Force? Was it nope. always a hobby? I wish I had. I like okay. I, like looking back on it. I wish I had. Yeah, would have been awesome. Sure. Yeah. When did you pick up the camera again? How how was it? Right when you got out of the I Air Force? I just gotten out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I bought a cam. Like I bought a a shitty not shitty. It was my first like camera that got me into what i'm doing now so uh it was like a sony a5000 or a5100 and that was what kind of i was just messing around making like stupid videos um just like i was like oh maybe i'll start like a youtube channel or some shit started that and then it just kind of took off um but you were contracting while you were doing all this yeah yeah so i I shot um i was you know instructing and the company i was instructing for they needed marketing content so shot some photos and stuff for them and i was like oh maybe i'll start doing this like why dope yeah what what was was there any conscious decision making behind the camera behind getting the camera and and deciding to go that route really it it was just an opportunity yeah it was just like well maybe i'll make some youtube videos and screw around a bit wow and uh from there just took off was there a learning curve for you just skill wise with taking pictures? Were you like, Oh shit, boy, I really fucked that up. Oh, I don't know how to shoot in this. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there were certain aspects that I already knew, uh, composition and stuff like that, you know? Um, but there, there's a lot that I had to learn. Um, you know, I, I already knew how to like take basic videos and edit. Um, one good thing for me uh, on the video side, not really on the photo side, but uh, I grew up, so I was actually a DJ for a, a long time growing up. Um, like I was very into like turntablism, so, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that whole piece of, uh, like I said, you know, I grew up graffiti, skating, hip hop, yeah. stuff yeah. like that. So in terms of editing videos with music, I already had timing, stuff like that down. So I knew how to kind of compile footage with music. Uh, so that was kind of a, a good thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a huge learning curve. I didn't know shit. So I was just, it was uh, YouTube university every single day. <laughs> so. How did you feel doing it? Did you start to feel more complete? Did you start to feel like this? there was a future here? Or what, what was emotionally, what did it mean for you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, it definitely gave me some purpose, kind of being able to tell uh, like brands stories because I was more on the marketing side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and... I think I've, I've, I've had, even to date, I have like bigger aspirations in a lot of it. And I just haven't figured out how to execute certain things, but, uh, being able to like tell those stories, was awesome to me. What are the aspirations? What do you want to be doing with it? Uh, I have a lot of love for documentary projects and obviously mm-hmm. I've heard, I don't know if you've seen it. I, I did one. Well, no, I did three technically, but, uh, 
the you know Rory Hamill's documentary was obviously a big piece to me. Um, but there's, I think on the on the documentary side, more aspirations for me than uh, I I don't I work for brands now. Um, the reason I enjoyed shooting so much for Patrol Base Bate was it's got a bigger purpose. Obviously, uh, there's that that storytelling component and that piece where you're you're able to actually help folks with it. So I would say that's more where my my heart and my head aligns than just telling, you know, showing marketing uh, brand work. So do you think you would still want it to be generally classified, though, as a branding exercise? Or do you want to be a documentarian with complete unilateral control like any filmmaker would to tell the story? Yeah, that you more on the documentary side, for sure. Yeah. yeah so it's uh, obviously it's a tough thing and i think executing as an individual is where it's like the hardest part because you know once you start working on a project you're like fuck like i I really need a team this is this is too much yeah for sure for sure what um your subject matter though that you seem to gravitate to you still like to be it seems like in the military space in the law enforcement space in the fitness space um do you see that changing or do you or i definitely say the military space um not really like i I don't really deal like the law enforcement side like you know those dudes are dope uh i don't i don't really deal with them um in terms of like like i've never worked on any law enforcement pieces or anything Mm -hmm. like that uh but yeah the veteran side of things i i you know and that's my community so it's it's like all right cool uh you know that's i i think in a lot of ways and you know i'm sure you've you've i feel like most folks have felt this way where it's like you kind of hate the veteran community, but you still love it because you know, <laughs> right. you're part of it. Right. And uh, I think I've, I've had that internal struggle a lot where, you know, for the past year, I wasn't really doing much with the veteran community and uh, patrol base Bate hit me up and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm down. I flew out there on 12 hours notice, but uh, there's kind of this, draw to a lot of the stories because I think they can benefit people as a whole. Um, I think they can, like I applied for a grant uh, for Getty images, which I didn't get. Um, but mm. it was for people with disabilities, like telling stories about people with disabilities. Well, think about a, a very young class of people that have disabilities that were pretty traumatic yeah. and they've taken those stories and been able to help everyone from children to the elderly and that's the veteran community yeah yeah so i'm always interested in the the um disconnect that veterans have with the veteran community i have my own feelings about it which maybe i'll get into but what what did you find rubbed you wrong about the veteran community what turns you off about the veteran community i think there's a lot of folks that can't move past it yep there's and i'm i'm guilty of it myself like there there was a a long period of time where that was how i identified myself yep uh and then i reached a point where i was like man i've I've been out longer than i was in yeah so what am i doing uh but i think there's a lot of aspects where it got um you know a it became this this thing for folks where they're like, "Hey, 
I, you know, I'm a disgruntled or dysfunctional veteran and stuff like that. It's like, no, you're just a dude that got out of the military and can't, you know, can't figure yourself out. Um, and you need to look deeper or you need to, to have some momentum. But I also think the system does a lot of that to us where, you know, they, they kind of do beat us down and you get out and, and you're basically told, Hey, you're going to struggle. Yeah. So I, I think that comes into play, but there's so many aspects to it where you have like people in the bro vet space, I guess, mm-hmm. like, you know, a lot of these brands and they're like, you always see the soft dudes supporting other soft dudes. You mm-hmm. don't see that with the conventional side. So no. there's a lot of people tearing other people down, both in both communities, by sure. all means. Like there, there's no shortage of drama in the veteran space, obviously. Right. But right. I think there's there are better ways that that folks can be involved with each other and can be supportive. Um, you know, th- there are great organizations like Patrol Base Vate where it is like, hey, we don't care what you did or yeah. who you served with, just yeah. show up. Um, but I think they're, you know, and, and I'm, I'm rambling here, obviously, but I think there's just a, a very large gap between it's like few and far between, right? Like you, you have great organization, but you have like 500 bad organizations because they're like, Hey, you had to be a fucking green beret that, that kicked in 17 doors and then you became a a seal at DevGrew, and that's the only way you can hang out with us. Otherwise, like, nope, we're not taking you. Right. And it's like I, I just don't. I think there's there's a lot of that as well. Um, so you have both ends of the spectrum, and uh, I think folks can honestly just show each other a little more empathy and be a little bit kinder, and um, you know, because because everyone's constantly talking about like veteran suicide and 22 a day and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, and you have yeah. veterans telling veterans to kill themselves. Like it's just not it's bizarre, it's, it's, but it's, it's fucking true. What do you, th- I mean, I, I'm kind of interested. I've thought a lot about PTSD as it relates to the veteran community. Cause God knows yeah. that is a hot button issue. What do you think it comes from? What do you think the, I mean, I don't think it's monocausal, but I mean, what do you think are some of the major drivers of PTSD in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I've always uh there was an instructor I used to work with when I got out and he would always say uh, you know, a gunshot wound in Baghdad and a gunshot wound in Camden are the same. Mm. Uh and and I think about that with the trauma as well. Uh so I don't obviously you know, we have a a a, a large group of veterans that do have combat related PTSD, but I think there are also other aspects of PTSD as well. Um you know, there's uh someone at your unit passes away or you see some traumatic shit in training. Mm -hmm. Um, In my case, I worked on people that were in their worst days in the military and I wasn't deployed. Yeah. Right. Uh, Like, yeah, I I walked into weird emergency situations and, you know, saw people that were shot up or blown up or had a really bad fucking accident or sick kids, sick kids messed me up a lot. Like I hated when I had to work on kids. That was like the hardest thing for me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and like, that's on a personal level, I can, you know, dive into that a little bit where I had situations, uh, with kids that affected me years later and manifested in the weirdest ways where, you know, I was driving to the VA one morning because my back gave out and I watched a little kid get run over in a parking lot 
and went to help her and couldn't because my back and I like a off duty firefighter picked her up and I assessed her and stuff, but I shut down after that. And I was, I like spiraled out of control for three weeks, you know? Um, but you know, being hyper vigilant around kids thinking something bad's going to happen all the time or whatever. So I think there's like PTSD can come from various different forms. And, uh, while I do think, you know, the veteran space does a good job of talking about it now. Uh, I think there's definitely ways it manifests that, that people don't realize, or they, they're like, uh, they're ashamed of it because it wasn't from, you know, combat action or whatever, right? Like, Oh, like, you know, someone was talking about, uh, at one of the camps at uh, patrol base, Vate, we were talking about it, how, like, if you don't have a car or a cab, like talking about like, Oh, you know, uh, you can't talk about having PTSD or whatever. Right. right? It's like, I know a dude that was on a, uh, on an Osprey over Syria that got shot at, um, literally rounds going through it. Didn't get shit from it. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure that dude was, was pretty affected by that being in a fucking tuna can flying through the air, getting shot at, you know? Yeah. 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 (laughs) No, absolutely. No, I think it's a really, um, I think that's a really poignant example, what you said about the kids. And this is kind of a, one of these broad late night college dorm session, lava lamp, you know, discussions you have, but I'll throw it out there. Um, What do you think about your own mortality now? Do you think that plays in now where you've seen death up close? You've seen trauma, physical trauma up close. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think when people start to wrap their heads around their own mortality and, and death specifically, I think that changes them. I think that becomes a different phase of their life. Do you feel the same way? Has that kind of been a thing for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and, and more recently than not, um, I've had a lot of, uh, reflection and, and time to kind of sit with my thoughts on a lot of that. Um, and one thing I, I read actually this week was a, one of the Marines from H Kaya mm. was talking about being 19 years old and thinking he was going to die. Right. Like yeah. that, that's some, some, some shit I remember. And I wasn't in that situation, but I think when I was going in, I was like, well, like I'm probably going to die in the military. Like that's, the nature of this right um and then realizing i have now at 31 i'm like man like i have a lot of life to live and a lot of shit i want to do um and you know right now just i'm literally living on the road like i live in my truck and i travel the country uh because i was like i'm missing out on experiences and i'm sitting stagnant i have no momentum whatsoever um so i need to go live and you know people have talked to me about like what ifs what if this happens? Yep. What yep. if, uh, you know, and, and I've seen some of the stories, I guess, are coming out about like camping and shit this summer with like people getting murdered. And I'm like, you know, like, <laughs> I think that's every, isn't that every summer that that's, that's just camping. That's yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want but I, I want to, oh, sorry, sorry. Finish your thought before I ask. Oh, go ahead, man. No, I, well, I was going to say, I mean, I'm, I, as people have listened to the show know, I mean, I lived out of my truck. I actually enlisted out of my truck, uh, which really threw my recruiter. Um, So I I have a lot of uh, affection for people that are are car homeless. 
Um, uh, mine was not by choice, but uh, but it was. I, I, I do think it changes the way that you live your life indelibly. I don't think you come back yeah. from that. Um, how's that been for you? Like, it, w- yeah. So mine's kind of by choice, kind of by, kind of like not by choice, I guess. Um, the main thing. Uh, so I was sleeping on my parents' living room floor on a sleeping pad for five months. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't get an, an apartment because you know they're like they want like i don't know three to four times income a month uh you know like all the crazy shit they want for you to get into an apartment now uh i also have a pit bull that is 100 pounds and people don't really like him uh nice dog in the world but hey yeah um, yeah. he's he's back with them at the moment but uh you know so i pretty much had the you know i I had already built um like overland rig with like fridge and a rooftop tent that i sold but uh i was like you know what like this is kind of my best option right now to go network and you know get creative again uh it's kind of crazy but also i think it could be pretty fucking cool so i just i had the opportunity to go meet up with some of the guys from h kaya um wow in Kentucky, uh, because they were doing a distillery tour there. So I was like, well, I'm going to do that. I may as well just keep going West and just kept driving. So been on the road for like just about two months now. So do you always have a destination in mind? No, (laughs) I literally ended up in Washington on like three hours notice. Wow. I was in Idaho and just was like, fuck it. I'm going to go to Oregon and then the Washington. So what does that do to you mentally? Do you find it stimulating creatively or do you find it disorienting, alienating? How do you find it? Depends on the day for Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, You know, and then I, uh, I was very stimulated and motivated uh, until I got to Oregon. Weirdly enough, I was on the coast. I drove out to the coast and, uh, I was like, man, I, I just need some cooler weather. Like the heat is just getting to me at this point. Um, and pretty sure I also, I, I came down with COVID. So I just wanted to get away from people. Mm. And uh, I get out to the coast and I just got bored as fuck. And, you know, once, once that hits, you're just like stagnant and you're sitting there and you're like, man, like I have too much time to think. Um, and I think that's where stuff like that hits. Uh, and you just kind of need to break that cycle. Um, you know, and I've been in Washington for, I don't know, four or five days just hanging out on, uh, and, and I'm actually leaving here shortly, but that's kind of the, the nature of it. I'm like, all right, I need to go again. So do you know where you're going to, do you know what you've got on the horizon? I'm going to bump around Washington for a little bit, check some stuff out. So gotcha. Yeah. What's do you uh, so it seems like if i if i had to speculate it seems like the the next general benchmark you want to hit is to start turning more into a documentarian and a filmmaker is that ballpark right maybe we'll see i i'm i'm debating a lot of things in my head and a lot of changes right now that um i'm not really sure if i'm going to be staying you know doing what i'm doing or if that's going to change um, I've definitely looked at possibly going to school for a bit as well. So mm. we'll see what happens. Having kind of some structure 
and some stability yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm I'm at. I'm like, you know, yeah. uh, this has taught me that I definitely do value that. I do value having like a hard structure to live in and having space. Um, although I, I am I am a bit of a minimalist in many regards. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I've realized about myself is I just accumulate crap sometimes. Yeah. Like yeah. I'll just have I'll get like random t-shirts and I'm like, why do I have I'm living in a car. Why do I have 50 t-shirts? <laughs> now, 50 pairs of underwear, that is necessary. But yeah, Very 50 true. t-shirts you don't always need. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, are you an artist? Do you consider yourself an artist? Sometimes. Other times, you know, I, I kind of ask myself, what is an artist? Or I look at like, uh, I think I definitely struggle with like comparison at times to other creators. Um, you know, I, I don't think I've, I've necessarily thought my thought of myself as an artist, uh, but I thought of myself as a creative, which I don't know. I don't know why there's that, that barrier between the two. Yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot of times I think of an artist as a, you know, a painter or someone that can sit there and like sketch something super elaborate for 17 hours, you know? Right. So. Yeah, there is something about creative where it's I I don't know if this is the actual definition, but it always seems like that's you know, for advertising or branding. It's like, oh, I'm a creative. Yeah. It's like the yeah. artist, but who the one that makes money because people yeah. are really interested in what they have to do. Um yeah. dude, this is um I'm so interested to see where things take you. Uh, I think your work is really exceptional. I don't think I said that up front. Um, I really, I enjoy, really appreciate that. I, I, I love looking through your stuff and I've always, and I've, and I should say this too, this is all stuff I should have said right up at the top, but um, it, your comments with a lot of your pictures are always interesting to me. Um, I know you've said, and this, I'm, this is all Instagram, but I know you've said on there, uh, you've kind of made mention occasionally of your disappointment with your time in the military. You've made mention of, um, kind of taking time off from work and trying to find your, I, this is my words, not yours, but like yeah. your creative voice again and going, yeah, yeah Hey, I, I got away from this. I'm trying to get back to this. And it's interesting because when I look at the images and I look at the products that you've put out, they're incredibly well polished. They don't smack of somebody that's going through all the wickets that you're going through personally, which might be true for a lot of people that we just don't see, you know, what's going on underneath the surface, but your work is, is, is incredibly mature. And, um, it doesn't, it does not seem like it's the, you know, feeble footsteps of somebody trying to, you know, ground themselves artistically or anything like that. And it's really exceptional work. And I'm interested to see what you come up with next. I really appreciate that, man. Yeah, this is, you know, it's, I think a lot of it too. I try to be pretty transparent. Um, you know, I, I get a lot of messages from folks that, that, uh, I don't, I'm not always the best about responding. I know that, uh, I try to, I try to be good about it, but I, I'm, I'm also trying to get away from social. So I'll like post mm. and just pop yeah. off. Yeah. But, uh, fire and forget. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot of folks in similar boats, you know, and, and yeah. people are struggling to find purpose and find, uh, maybe a creative outlet or whatever. And I got very lucky that my creative outlet became my job. Uh, maybe unlucky too. I, I don't know. It depends how you look at it. Uh, Cause I, I've definitely considered doing something else just so I could shoot for me and just have fun. But uh, 
No, it's I think been, it's lucky though. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. very lucky yeah. um, that people were like, "Hey, you're good enough. We want to pay you." You know, yeah. and, uh, it, it, yeah, it definitely just snowballed, and I've been very fortunate because of that. And you know, now it's like I literally got on the road so I could you know create this photo book and just do thing something different. So it's been fun. So th- there is going to be a photo book coming out of your road trip. Yeah, yeah, that's so, badass. Uh, good. Yeah, that's I've fucking been, awesome. Uh, yeah, I've been talking to uh, Dead Reckoning Collective, and and they're going to be publishing it for me. Uh, so oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty rad because they don't have a photo book out, so I get to be the first one. And we've talked about it for years, but I, I just never executed. And uh, I finally hit Keith and Tyler up, and I'm like, "Hey guys, like, do you want to publish this for me?" And they're like, "Yes." That's fucking great. God damn. You know, it's funny. You're you're one of the few times I did not. You know, like, I always talk to Dead Reckoning authors. And yeah. uh, and go ahead. I, I fucking of course I'm talking to another dead reckoning author. I didn't even know it. <laughs> fucking go figure. Yeah. Um, that's great, man. That's really great news. I'm really glad you're you're kind of um, what's the right word? Weaponizing or, or utilizing all those experiences and putting them into a, a cohesive format. That's fucking great. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about the. Um, I actually had the idea for this book about two years ago. Uh, actually, two years ago next month. So. Um, I was I was going to one of my close friends' weddings and uh like some of the stuff in the town was just really shitty and beat up and and I was just you'll see the book when it comes out, but uh it, it'll make sense on what the kind of the, the theme of the book is. Um but it's yeah, it's it's been interesting driving around to get some of these photos. It's been uh you know, kind of kind of sketchy places at times that's fucking like, oh. great that's awesome yeah, so. though that's like that's photography though that's fuck that's i yeah. think what makes photography exciting yeah yeah that's so fucking cool yeah more times than not i get rejected when i ask for portraits which kind of sucks because i need portraits for this book and oh, <laughs> i like gotcha. can't get them yeah, from some yeah, of these yeah. people and i'm sure fuck sure so sure. it's definitely asking a one percenter for their photo was not the best idea i've had in my life but oh that's funny yeah, yeah, it's weird. I was, uh, I, what's funny, I saw it on Instagram, like somebody was approaching a homeless guy and they asked him if they could take his picture and, and talk to him and all that. And I was like, huh, I never would have thought of that. I, I would you, yeah. you kind of see people on the street and you're like, oh, that's public domain. I'll, I'll take I'll take my picture. But I, I thought that yeah. was a nice and bit of etiquette. But small town America isn't always about it. That's one yeah. thing I've realized on this. Um, I, you know, I, I came up shooting street photos. That was that was like my passion. But uh you know, in cities, I think it's a little more well uh, accepted. Yeah. But walking up to like a random farmer and being like, you know, hey, buddy, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. mind if I take your portrait? <laughs> like, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> go back to the city, boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, no, that's when you wear the Air Force hat. You got to play the Air Force yeah. card up and go, hey, I'm a veteran doing this. Then they kind of go, they can contextualize it. And they're like, oh, okay, maybe, and maybe they play along. I don't know. I feel like that's where you play the veteran card. You know, some sometimes maybe I don't know. I'm throwing out there. I don't know, but yeah, I know, I know. I I feel like that's when you could. Well, it's funny you say that though. I I'll I'll just say uh, one of the. I still think about this time. It really pissed me off. But I was at an airport breaking up with a girlfriend years and years and years and years years ago, and a dude was (laughs) around the corner at like another gate, and he like poked out with his professional lens and took a picture of us and pulled back, and I was like. What the 
fuck was that? And I was like, that made me even more angry. And we were like, yeah. you know, really getting into it even more. And I was like, what the fuck? And then he came walking past us and he kind of looked at me and kind of gave a little wave, like a really timid wave. He wasn't sure if I was going to punch him or something. And he just kind of waved and kept walking. I was, I was like the balls on this fucking guy. And I, and I, yeah. to this day, I still think about that. So when you talk about getting permission, I was like, yeah, he didn't fucking ask permission at all. And it really fucking pissed me off, but um, yeah, it, I guess I mean, he got the picture. So good on him, you know, kind of weird. Yeah. yeah it's, it's kind of weird. weird. I, like yeah. there's certain shit I won't shoot for sure. Um, that, that would probably be one of them. Kind of a weird thing, but I don't know if you get I away with it. I don't know. He maybe did. That's I, his, I don't know where I, if I ended up his, in some uh, gallery somewhere, but yeah. Yeah. I don't well, know. It's like fetish. I don't know. Kind of <laughs> There's that too. There could be that too. I don't know. Oh, like it was a professional <laughs> lens, which may be a little bit more comfortable. But maybe it shouldn't have. Maybe it was, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm in some fucking yeah. weirdo's bathroom mirror now. Anyway. There you go, man. On but, that note, uh, that's a good, appropriate, weird note to, to wrap this on. Dude, yeah, yeah. this is fucking great, man. I really enjoyed the shit out of talking to you, man. Um, Come back. Let me know how things are going. Definitely, uh, man. This was awesome. This was just such a blast, dude. And um, yeah. yeah. Can't wait to see what you, can't wait to see the book when it comes out and uh yeah and all the other projects you got going on. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. That was Paul Alcobe's profile in Havoc. Check out all the links for Paul um in the show notes. We've got everything um, you know, some of the uh documentarian style work that he's done, uh, you know, his Instagram feed, all that stuff. So you can follow him, see what he's up to. And um, check out everything that he has going on. Okay, up front, I uh, gave you guys an ad for our first sponsor of today's episode, Second Mission Foundation. I'd like to take a second to talk about our second sponsor, which is the Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and celebrate veterans in the arts. It's a creative hub. Actually, I changed this language. Yeah, I'm going to change this language. I'm, I'm going to change it right now on the fly. Let me see if I can remember what our new wording is for this. I used to say it was a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. Um, but we've kind of reworked it a little bit. I don't know. Try this on for size. Uh, it's, a, it's a platform for veterans in the arts to create compelling live theater and events. Does that sound cleaner? Does that sound a little bit cleaner? I'm being very informal about this because if you've listened to the episode for this long and you're listening to the ad at the end, I think you're you're, you're in for whatever I got coming to you. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Let me know. Send me some comments and all that uh, if you guys like the uh, the new ad copy. Um, but I like that. Of course, this is my nonprofit, so I have a vested interest in you know what you guys think about uh, how we phrase our mission. Anyway. Veterans Repertory Theater is awesome. It's my nonprofit. We're doing a ton of stuff over there. We've got the Savage Wonder podcast, the Savage Wonder literary blog. We've got uh, you know plays that are currently in, uh, in development, um, and we'll be talking a whole lot more about those when those come along. But for basically everything we're doing, all of our lines of effort, go to vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And thank you to both Second Mission and Veterans Repertory Theater for sponsoring this episode okay if you are on itunes and you haven't given us a five-star review please do so it means a world to us it's great to get any review any kind of feedback if you can slap five stars onto it we deeply appreciate it say whatever you want to us but five attaching it to five stars would be dynamite 
because those metrics do matter. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Paul Kobe, and we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. <laughs>